Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. I welcome you very much to Radio Evolve, our webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very happy to have with us Silla Elfworthy. Silla, welcome to the radio show here. I'm delighted to be with you. If I just may introduce you for the people who maybe don't know you yet, although I don't think there will be many of our listeners, you were three times nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for developing effective dialogue between nuclear weapons policymakers worldwide and their critics with the Oxford Research Group founded in 1982. You also founded Peace Direct 2002, an organization to fund, promote, and learn from local peace builders in conflict areas. And you were advertiser to Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Sir Richard Branson for setting up the elders. And you were awarded the Nirvana Peace Prize in 2003. And right now you wrote a new book, which is called The Mighty Heart, How to Transform Conflict. And this is exactly uh, what you would like to talk with you about, because with all your background in conflict resolution and dialogue and being aware of our um, uh, difficult situation that we have worldwide right now, uh, if I may say so. And as we just said in the conversation that we had before we started this program, uh, one of the main uh, skills that we need is dialogue. Mm -hmm. I would like to start to ask you, you called this book in a very interesting way. You said the mighty heart. Hmm. And there's also one thing that caught my attention right away. You said not to how to solve conflicts, but you said how to transform conflicts. So that's a, an interesting way to put it. So my question is, what is the mighty heart? Yeah. Why transforming conflict and not solving conflicts? Oh, thank you, Thomas. That's a brilliant question. Um, just after Christmas last year, I suddenly had a premonition that we as a human race were going to be presented with a massive challenge I had no idea that it was a pandemic, but I knew that we needed to gather um, every skill we can and make it available as widely as possible, which others are doing. And I'm very happy that they're doing that. Um, so I just uh, sat down and wrote everything that I know and others and my good colleagues from very troubled parts of the world, what they do. And it's always about transforming conflict because um, there's nothing wrong with conflict. It's not bad or good. It's what we do with it that matters. And um, the more I thought about it and the more the words just poured onto the page, um, the more I felt my heart. And I realized that in order to do this kind of work, we have to develop our heart capacity. Uh, by that, I mean, uh, if we take, for example, the, the question of listening, when normally when somebody's speaking to us, we are mainly listening with our mind. And if it's an argument, we're thinking, I'm right and he's wrong. But as soon as we really listen, the attention goes from the, the mind, which is saying that judgment, 
to the heart as we listen, which says, oh my goodness, is that how he feels? And then we have a bridge over which we can cross to the other person's point of view and, and their feelings. So um, that, in, that in a way is why, well, in all aspects, in my experience, those who are really effective at working with conflict are the ones who have done what you and I would call the inner work. And also they have expanded their heart, often through breaking their heart when they're facing very difficult issues. But then often after the heart breaks, it grows bigger. So that's why I called it a mighty heart. Thank you for that. I, I would like to also hone in on the listening that you just started in because listening sounds like, uh, yeah, of course, listening. Everyone uh, knows listening. But isn't it, it that listening as a capacity is very underrated, even if you think it's important? Because there is a form of listening, I think that you hinted to that, that is uh, quite challenging, uh, challenging not in an intellectual way, but in an existential way. Because if I really listen to you, I allow you to question my foundations. Mm. And I find it always interesting, uh, how much do you want to hear you if what you have to say is maybe something that really questions me in a very deep sense and makes me very insecure. Because to be honest, at least it's my experience, there's always uh, a point in myself where I'm not so sure anymore if I really want to be kind of shaken that way or if I would prefer not to hear you. Okay. Is that kind of listening and the half quality that you're talking about uh, to have the capacity to have the guts to hear and yes. um, allow the hearing to affect you? Exactly. You, you've put it so elegantly and eloquently I couldn't express it better really because that is the that is the uh, profound gift of listening it takes a lot of courage to be willing to hear the truth from somebody else especially if we are in conflict with that person and so uh, to listen to really listen instead of the mind saying oh I don't agree with that, or I know all about that. I don't need to be told that, or whatever the mind says. If we really listen, we're listening for the emotions of the other person behind their words. We're listening for their heartbreak, their suffering, their jealousy, their anger. And that's, as you say, not always easy. But There is one caveat. What I suggest that people do, if there is, for example, a family feud, a family disagreement, mm -hmm. it might be one that's been going on for many years. And if I can approach the person with whom I'm in conflict and use four magic words, would you be willing? Would you be willing 
to sit with me for half an hour. And for the first five minutes, I will ask you to talk about your side of the conflict we share. Mm-hmm. And to talk in the first person, not pointing finger. And tell me about how you feel about it. And I will listen to you so carefully that after five minutes or so, I will be able to repeat back to you what you have said as closely as I can and what I guess are the feelings behind it for you to correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And then we'll change over and I will talk about um, how I feel about the conflict and you will kindly listen so carefully that you can feed back to me what I've said afterwards as closely as you can. Because I'm sure that if we do that together, we will be able to reach a different understanding of what has been going on so painfully between us. Because it kind of surprised me uh, and I had to think about it because you really wanted to listen to the feelings. Yes. And that's... that's Thomas, Thomas, I must stop you because I'm getting a lot of dislocation on the audio. Can Can you check it? Or maybe it's my audio. Let me just check. Hold on. Is it better now? Yeah, it's better now. Got it. Thank you. Sorry about that. Okay. My question was, uh, when I was uh, already reading your book, uh, it really caught my attention that you were say, saying, listening to the feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's kind of, when you listen to a person, you try to understand, what, what, and you, you understand where do we agree, where do we disagree. But as I hear you, you ask to listen for something different, listen to the feeling of the other, Mm-hmm. The way I interpret it, uh, and correct me if, if, if that is uh, wrong, is if I listen to the feeling, I, I listen where you come from. Mm-hmm. And uh, that allows me to see you in a different way. It's not just uh, do I agree with you or don't agree? Is, is your argument right, wrong? There's, there's something where uh, understanding or hearing your feelings uh, allows me or even uh, pushes me uh, to see you as a person in a much more uh, multidimensional way than I would have seen you otherwise if you just listened to the arguments that you're bringing. You have it exactly. It's exactly like that. And as I see it, we, in this process, we move from the brain, which at the beginning says, I'm right and he's wrong, mm-hmm. to the heart that says, oh my goodness, is that how he feels? And then we have a bridge over which we can walk. Mm. Why, why is that the bridge? Because it, it, when, there's a, a, when there is feeling, it's much easier to cross over to the other person. But I, it, can, yeah, I can inhabit for, even for a few seconds how you feel, and hopefully you can do the same. Mm. But isn't it also challenging to um, go there, to reach the level of the feelings? Because usually uh, when I have very strong feelings about something and Mm -hmm. the other has very strong feelings about something, that's um, 
can be the bridge, but it can be also the wall. Yeah. <laughs> hit on each other and where I just, I, I hear you, but uh, it really triggers all my feelings. So why, why do you, why do you say this is the bridge and this is not the wall? Um, because if, if, if I, I think the whole process of expanding the capacity of the heart is to be able to contain that. If you are speaking to me and you are really angry and if I can bear it, and still hear you and absorb you, something will change. Even if, even if I just stay silent for a while, something will change because you have been heard. Mm -hmm. And when you have been heard, it might take longer than half an hour, but when you have been heard, something in you will relax. It's it's um uh, it goes back to the one of the uh, one of the mechanisms of conflict is that um, one of the biggest drivers of conflict is humiliation, and uh, because humiliation breeds all kinds of strong feelings, anger, resentment, wish to get back at the person, all that. But if the humiliation and the anger can be heard fully heard and if possible if possible heard respectfully that is the fastest way to change humiliation and anger but it's not easy i agree i also would like to ask you because what you're saying you started with um like kind of conflict in a, in a family constellation. Mm -hmm. I think many of us can relate how a particular family constellation, feelings, old feelings, old patterns play a big role. But uh, your conflict resolution is not just in family. Con mm. uh, you were in the political and the social fields. Mm -hmm. In this field where it's not just about how I relate to my father, to my sister, to my uncle, uh, to my nephew, but... Uh, where there are big social constellation and questions and there's ideology part of it. There are big uh, uh, technical questions part of it. Do you still think that uh, seeing the other, listening to the other in this way is a key to change conversations like this? I mean, look at the conversation that we have right now in many countries, uh, even about COVID, the COVID crisis or about immigration crisis. Uh, uh, there the, are, the, political issues building up, there's a lot of question of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, what would you suggest? What is your advice? Uh, it, it, your question is a, is, is a really good one. And there's no doubt about it that real listening, this process of listening does take time. Hmm. Uh, it's not possible to do it in a crowded boardroom or in a council chamber in the European Union or the Commission. I mean, it's, it's, um, and, and this is why it, it is difficult to do in highly politicized, highly public environments. But if I may, I'll take you to the other extreme of actual violence, just to, to, to show what can happen even with a gesture. Um, in 2003, 
Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes was leading his men down a street in Najaf in Iraq shortly after the American invasion. This was when you still could you you could still lead a foot patrol down a street, and all of a sudden, uh, out of the streets and mosques on either side of the road, poured extremely angry men, screaming and waving their fists and yelling at these young. American soldiers who didn't speak any Arabic had no idea what was going on and were terrified. Straight in the instant into that throng, Chris Hughes strode in with his weapon pointed at the ground and he gave his men an order they had never heard in their lives. Kneel! And so they wobbled to the ground in their heavy body armor and their helmets and put their weapons into the sand. The whole crowd grew silent. And after about three or four minutes, everybody went home. And a bloodbath was avoided. Now, what I'm saying, and there was no language in common. No, none. And so what I'm saying is that by this gesture of respect, in that instant, Chris Hughes realized that the, these men had suffered some kind of humiliation. I don't know if he even thought about it like that, but he instinctively knew that a gesture of respect was necessary to save lives. And it worked. It might not always work, but it worked. So, you know, that, that's the sort of extreme of the fact that um, we need to meet humiliation with respect. Yeah. Well, let's use this extreme example because uh, it's very extreme, it's very human, but it's also very real in the political scale. Uh, it doesn't have to be the streets of Iraq. It happens all around the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, what skills was using you you are writing in this book about the skills that we need for conflict resolution mm-hmm. what, what skills was this and how, what what skills would you describe are important to uh, um, solution in conflicts well first of all presence that young man had incredible presence now, i don't mean presence like an actor who can fill a stage mm-hmm. i mean the presence that comes from having faced your own fear. So he was able to be fully there and fully present because he had dealt with his own fear. And that's why the training to be able to resolve conflict does require looking at and meeting our own fear. And let us take the example of the inner critic. Do do you have an inner critic, Thomas? Never. (laughs) Well, you see, everyone does. Whenever I ask an audience to put up their hand, if they haven't got an inner critic, nobody puts their hand up. And it's in um, in the higher reaches of the civil service or the politics, it's often called the imposter syndrome, you know if they knew that I really don't know what I'm talking about, they'd find me out. So it's, it's the, it's the little, for me, it's a a nasty little voice that sits on my shoulder and mutters at me. So 
because it's a lifelong experience for many of us, it's a perfect way to uh, face our fear. Because what it's telling us is you're going to make a real mess of that interview or you haven't done your homework. Uh, you shouldn't be going out and making a, a, a talk or a lecture today because you don't really know what you're talking about. All those things that the inner critic says. Uh, so if you like, I can, I can tell you what, what I invented as my way of dealing with the inner critic and what helped me um, face my own fear. Shall I do that? Is that useful? Okay. Um, the inner critic was had the habit of waking me up at 3 a.m. muttering at me and I would toss and turn for half an hour and get more and more upset. And so I thought, well, I better get up. So I made a cup of tea as we do in this country and I set out two cushions and I sat on one and I put my inner critic metaphorically onto the other one. And so I sat there and I said, why did you wake me up at 3 a.m.? And then I moved, you actually have to move to the cushion of my critic. And to my immense surprise, I spoke with its voice. Mm. And it said just what I've said to you. Well, you haven't done your homework. You don't know what you're talking about. You're going to make a mess of this, all that. So then I come back to my cushion and I say, that was not very helpful. You have to be quite tough with your inner critic. Tell me what you really mean. And then I go back to his cushion and he starts to talk a bit more helpfully, but not really telling what I want him to say, which is the real reason why he woke me up. So then I go back to my seat and I say, yeah, that's fine, but tell me what you know that I really need to know. And then I go back to his seat and then he starts to say, well, um, you know, you often don't find time to, to make a proper preparation, but you really need to for tomorrow and you should now go down to the bookcase and take out a certain book and find out what you need to say about X, Y, or Z. He will, as the conversation goes on, the critic will become more and more um, precise in his advice. And at certain, in certain instances, he has, he has revealed a real gem to me. I call it the, the gem under the dragon's foot because he's like a fire-breathing dragon. And you have to approach near enough to him that you overcome your fear and then he will lift up his foot and you can get the diamond that is there. I would like to bring your inner critic uh, to this situation uh, in the street of Iraq. Ah. And what you said before. Mm. So you, you, you were using a word, uh, you started with that presence. Mm -hmm. And the way I understand you is uh, that the inner critic, uh, for example, could be others, is uh, one way to be not present. Because if, if my... Uh, If this man, this officer, uh, would have been kind of uh, in, in his own engagement with uh, I shouldn't be there or I'm scared or whatever, uh, 
the very thing that you pointed out, that he maybe didn't even know why he asked his man to put down, but there was a recognition of the need of showing respect. Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe is the moment of presence. Yes. And, and sorry, go on. And presence, if I understand it right, means being available for what is needed. But if I haven't done my homework, I won't be able. So that's an interesting thing because basically, if, if that is true, what you're saying, in order to be able uh, to engage with conflicts in a transformative way, I have to do my homework first yes. to be available. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I think you're on exactly the, the, the track that um, it's finding the right method for you that enables you to deal with your own fear. Because it's our fear that, as you just said, prevents us being present enough to say the right thing in the right moment. When we talk about conflict, we had family conflict. We, had, we have this conflict um, in the Iraq war. Mm. You're also describing different forms of conflict. Is it important to, to understand in which kind of conflict I am? Is this part uh, of ill sets that you are, that they are describing that I really see oh, this is, yeah, family conflict is different than a political conflict. Sure. Uh, is this helpful and, and how is this helpful? Uh, yeah, it, it's very important to have different methodologies for different types of conflict. That's why in the little booklet, The Mighty Heart, uh, and I'm just rewriting that book to be much, much bigger now. It's going to be a full-scale book, very beautifully illustrated in Germany, actually. And um, what, I'm, what I'm doing is saying there are really four types of conflict, for simplicity's sake. There's interpersonal conflict that we've just been describing. And then there's, um, if you like, community conflict with your neighbors or your uh, people in your in your environment, maybe an argument over parking or whatever it is. And then um, the, the conflict that can erupt in, uh, in the workplace where um, there is a hierarchy and it's very difficult for people to, what I would call, take a stand or stand their ground when they have to say something difficult to a superior. And then there's the kind of international conflicts that we dealt with a lot when we were doing the nuclear weapons work, which require really a different approach because you have to go step by step to be able to even talk to the decision maker who can make a difference. So, for example, if, if you're an environmentalist and you're really angry about a power station, if if you have to um, intervene in a in a complex political problem, you need to prepare quite carefully. Um, and I, I go through all the steps that you need to use to get ready to make a difference with somebody in a position of considerable power. You were making the point uh, that I also have uh, 
to be, to find where the decision makers are in this. Can you say more about this? Sure. That, that I found it a very interesting point because we, we are particularly if it's a, a conflict in a more complex uh, situation, we are not uh, thinking about maybe exactly this question, where is the decision maker in all of that? And maybe also not be the obvious one. Yes, exactly. Well, it, it was given to me in a way when I was assisting at the United Nations in 1982 during the buildup of the Cold War. And there was a conference going on about nuclear weapons and it got nowhere for six weeks, no progress at all. And I was rather heartbroken, strap hanging on a tram on New York. And a voice said in my ear, you're talking to the wrong people. These people in the UN can't do anything about this. Uh, So I thought, well, who can? And the voice said, go and find the people who really make the decisions. And I thought, well, who are they? And it then it dawned on me, they're the physicists who designed the warheads, the military who designed the strategy for the nuclear weapons, the weapons manufacturers who designed the missiles and the airplanes, the people who signed the checks, the intelligence people who say that these weapons are necessary, and last of all, the politicians. So I thought, oh, okay. So I stopped what I was doing in New York went home to Oxford and started a research group around my kitchen table to do just that. And it took us four years to publish the first book, which was called How Nuclear Weapons Decisions Are Made. And it had wiring diagrams for every department in all the nuclear weapons nations, the then nuclear weapons nations. So, With all this hard work, we were able to even pinpoint the individuals. Once you know the map of decision-making, which is 100 times easier now with the internet, then you can pinpoint the person you need to talk to. And then the interesting stuff begins because you have to find out enough about that person's responsibilities that you can write a sufficiently well-informed letter to that person or email uh, that he or she will find it useful to have a conversation with you. So you need to approach the issue that he is in charge of or she is in charge of and uh, hone it down to something that you really mind about and where you could make a suggestion or uh, enter what you were talking about, a dialogue. And we called this project Dialogue with Decision Makers. You just said also uh, to find a reason why it would be interesting for him to talk to you. Yeah. And that's maybe uh, in conflict uh, resolution uh, one of the most important questions. Because there's, if you talk about another side, um, there is always um, a reason to talk or not to talk. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, um, it's not necessarily the obvious one because it's not necessarily the case that everyone wants to uh, uh, solve a conflict because sometimes a conflict is also something you want to have. And uh, isn't it again, uh, when we talk about uh, the political scale, as you are describing, 
that I have to have an understanding first of the, the systems the decisions are, are made in, uh, how they work together, and also to understand the other side or the other sides in, 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 in this conflict, uh, what is, uh, what are they in for? What is, uh, why are they doing what are they doing and what is the common ground? Isn't that part of the, the conflict resolution also to really respect that every, everyone who is in this conflict has also a motivation that has to be respected and then find a way that um, maybe uh, has more synergy than conflict. Exactly that. You've put it precisely better than I could express it. Um, and doing that homework, which, you know, it's, it's fascinating work, especially if you're finding out the real reasons why this power station was being built, for example, um, then you can search and see what, uh, what could be of interest to your decision maker that you could propose or suggest. Um, and you could also get a much better idea of where his or her doubts about the project mm. are. I would like to go to a different kind of conflict uh, that uh, seems to be very much a conflict that is exploding right now. That's um, of course also related to the decision-making as you're describing, but uh, with the rise of the social uh, media, it is also a conflict between groups, a conflict uh, with the other, and the form of conflicts that we are experiencing right now around uh, Black Lives Matter movement, around immigration, uh, around, around uh, COVID, around uh, uh, all kind of uh, stuff. There, of course, there is the side where basically we have to define uh, decision makers, but also there are whole groups which are identi self-identified. And there is, a, there is a dynamic between groups to identify the other uh, as uh, uh, the evil, let's mm. put it that way. Isn't that um, something that um, needs a particular also understanding of conflicts to, to de-escalate this kind of conflicts that we are finding everywhere? And what would be your skill set to transform this kind of conflicts that we are so much in right now? Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's extremely painful what social media has done in terms of stirring people up. And because of uh, anonymity, uh, it, it, it gets worse. So um, I suppose um, the, if it were possible, I would try to identify five or six people on either side mm -hmm. and ask them if it's possible to meet either on Zoom or if it's necessary or if it's possible in the future in person. So that people come out of their anonymity then because it's the anonymity of a tweet or a, a nasty message, which I think in, 
entitles people to say terrible things. So if it's possible to not challenge, but invite people from both sides to actually meet one another and spend, it might take two hours, to, for each person to speak and be really listened to, as we've talked about, in person, and have one other person from the other side feedback to them what they heard. In other words, to do this kind of process but um, to get to enable people to get out behind their anonymity. And they may not agree to do it, but in the very not agreeing to do it, it's, it, they, they will feel that they've been a little cowardly. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it, that may be also a methodology to get into a dialogue with them. If, if one really cares, I am doubtful as to how far that kind of argument leads us in terms of resolving the problem. Mm. And so I would, I would encourage people in those situations to, to bring into the conversation some possible agreements or solutions or ways of moving forward and ask the people on the other extreme how they would feel about that. And they might dismiss it out of hand. But anything that can, as you, as you know so well, bring the thing out of a, an insults game or a shouting match and into a dialogue will be a huge step forward. What are you suggesting uh, holds two things? One, uh, to bring people in personal relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way I understand what you're saying is it again uh, allows me to see the other not just as a holder of an opinion that I don't like, but I experience the other as a human person who has a feeling uh, a background to where he comes to. And then uh, to experience that the other person uh, re- reacts to my suggestions in a way that I can also respond to him or her uh, as the person that I see in front of me or with me right now. That's a very different setting than, than Twitter. That's a very different setting than Facebook. So uh, what, what I hear you is suggesting to bring people from other sides, whatever, whatever these other sides may be, in a, in, in a small context where they can relate as humans with each other and not just as holders of a kind of a big identities that are opposed to each other. Sure. Is there any, if people say, okay, we can do that, uh, is there any strategy that you experience as being helpful to de-escalate com- uh, conflict in this way? Um, I think mainly the, the ones that we have covered. Um, but if you look at what happened with the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States, 
where the protesters were um, not violent and were not um, masked or having their identity hidden and where um, they particularly walked uh, or stood with their arms, I can't do it on the screen here, but with their arms out, so that's clear they had no weapons or bricks or anything in their hands. And the police could see that they were unarmed and inviting dialogue. I think it was at those moments that there are examples of the police um, commanders Mm -hmm. saying, there's a very famous one from, I forget which town, where the police commander said, okay, what is it you want? What is it you really want? And the protesters said, walk with us. And the police commander said, okay. And he turned his men around. It didn't mean to say they were agreeing with the protesters, but they walked with them down the street. So that was... It was a way of manifesting no violent intent. We're not here to cause trouble. We want to make our point. We have our placards. We we have a message. And then it gave the police a chance to say, okay, so you're you're not aiming to cause us trouble and hurt us, as some protesters are. How can we negotiate here? And they did. And, you know, possibly save lives that way. I'm sure there will be many people listening to us who are very aware of the very intense times that we are in. They're sure. aware of the escalation of conflict that experience it in their own circumstances where they are and they just uh, want uh, advice mm-hmm. uh, in this situation, what can I do? What are steps? What are, are skills? What are methods uh, that I can start to do something about this escalating situation that we're in? Is, mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I know there is no short answer to all of that. Mm-hmm. But, um, is there something where all of us can start making a difference? Oh, bless you. Um, yes. I mean, we've had such a strong uh, response to this booklet that you've seen that we're now doing an online course on it. So we're starting on um, the 6th of October with a 10-part course. We can send you some material if you like. And we will go through all these different steps live with um, our participants. And this is this kind of... Um, pioneer course to see what people really need the kind of questions you've asked have been extremely helpful today with me so we i would include some of these issues that you've raised um and then when we see how the original course goes for 10 parts finishing in december then we'll make it available much much more widely Mm -hmm. Um, we also Um, some very kind volunteers have made a German translation of the booklet, The Mighty Heart. It's not published yet, but um, I could ask them if they would be willing to share it with your um, listeners 
are your listeners if they if they want it. It's not perfect. It's not professional. It's an it's it's done by volunteers. But if it was helpful for people who don't speak English so well, then uh, we would be happy. To, I'm sure they would be happy to supply it. Is there any particular uh, website URL that people can contact you for that? Uh, yeah, well, just Google my name, and all this material is on on that website. But also look for the, the business plan for peace dot org, and um, that has all the details of the Mighty Heart and the upcoming course. Um, so that would be a good place to go, and we hope to be able to. I, there, there's been such a lot of interest from German speakers that I do think that we will have a, in time, we'll have a proper formal German translation. But in the meantime, I'll ask my colleagues if they would. May I link them up with you, uh, Thomas? Okay, I will. I will write to them now um, and uh, see what what can be done because as I don't speak German well enough. I only learned it till high school. Um, so I don't speak German well enough to know how perfect their translation is, but I believe it's good enough. So we are also at the end of our time. Thank you very much for this conversation. And thank you so much for your work. Thank you. Thank you for your um, wonderful program and all the questions that you asked that really um, made, me, made me think more and further. And I'm grateful for that.